Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. Good morning. It's so nice to partner with Ricky again. Sweet to have you share your family with us. Thank you for that. All right. Thanks, kids, by the way. All that practice paid off. So today's lectionary has us looking at a compilation of faith stories. So first, we'll be reading about Abraham, also called Abram, and his story may teach us about the sufficiency of a person's faith. Second, we'll hear a psalm of David, this beautiful expression of faith and worship from a shockingly flawed king. And that lesson may confront our notion about perfection and utility in service toward God. And then finally, we'll read in the gospel a stinging rebuke of Peter's faith, which shakes me more than the others, probably because the conversation hits closer to home. And the lesson that Christ followers are taught through Peter's encounter is, in my mind, the more daunting of the three. So let me start with a definition of faith and an overview of some champions of faith, individuals who are celebrated by the writer of Hebrews. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Now, as we read this section in Hebrews, I suspect that our responses fall into two or three general categories. So one hearer might say, oh, well, that's the list of actors in the Judeo-Christian biblical narrative. Got it. Another might say, ah, those are exemplars of our tradition. It's good to recall them. And the other here might ask, who am I among those credited with faith, and who am I called to be? And to any of those responses, I'd say, it's really good to check our spiritual journey periodically. Know where you stand, assess honestly, and then... If you're open to letting information shape you, know that a layered lesson like the one that's mapped out for us today points us to growth steps, should we be so inclined later. 
So now let's look at Abraham's story with two things in mind. First, Abraham's faith was sufficient to participate with God. And that terminology is important. And second, second, Abram's faith was imperative for the future. So what was the composition of early sufficient faith? Well, we can read that Abram responded to a voice that stood out among the other gods. And why is that significant? Well, Abram was called out of Ur, and that's today's Iraq, from the Chaldeans, whose religious practices related to a pantheon of gods and idols. Joshua 24 said that Abraham and his father worshipped idols. Faith traditions are often handed down generationally. Abram's father, Terah, likely spoke of many gods. Maybe among them, the God who spoke creation into existence and breathed life into beings. Now, Genesis adds that Abraham's son Jacob instructed his sons to throw out their foreign gods and his wife Rachel to steal her father's idols, each incident implying ongoing toleration, at least, of polytheism, even while he was actively obeying God's command to go for him. So what else is significant about that first interaction between God and Abram. The fact that an interaction happened at all. The moon god, Nana, was integral to Chaldean worship. Terah surely would have taught that to Abram. But distant and foreign objects did not interact with humanity. Those crafted deities didn't chat or command, or comfort. The scope of human interaction with inanimate objects and forces of nature was limited to hopeful acts of appeasement. But when God spoke, that was distinctive. This one God was interactive, and Abram chose to answer his call. And the call was for Abraham to leave behind all that he knew and heed this divine voice. But we can't rule out that there was some background noise playing. Now, that's one possible explanation for why Abram responded to God. Rabbinic literature called Midrash offers at least one other. Now, Midrash is an ancient commentary on part of Hebrew scriptures attached to biblical text, and it goes like this. There's the wonderful midrash in which a man is wandering through a forest when he sees a palace on fire. It is burning to the ground and nobody seems to be stopping it. Surely, the man reasons, the palace has an owner. Why is it being left to burn? Just then, a head pops out of a window in the palace. I am the owner of the palace, it cries. Similarly, When Abraham sees that the world seems to have no one looking after it, God reveals himself to him, declares himself to be the master of the universe, and sends Abraham on his mission. The Midrash is explaining that Abraham came to a rational, logical conclusion that God must exist. That explanation fascinates me. 
So many modern faith traditions place a really strong emphasis on emotional, experiential evidence of a person's faith encounter with Christ. Those do occur. But maybe you can imagine the myriad problems that arise in the absence of stereotypical evidence. This midrash suggests that deductive reason was enough to prompt a sufficient faith response on par with Abram's knowledge base. God spoke to Abram from the heavens. One God had previously spoken in and to his creation. Therefore, he alone demonstrated himself to be the most likely author of heaven and earth. And Abram followed the command of the only animated God. So that piece of information and just enough faith Abram chose thoughtfully and importantly acted on his decision and took his family along. And that's why the account of Abraham in Hebrews continues with the inclusion of his wife Sarah and the preface, and by faith even Sarah. Now this is where Sarah comes in and this is today's Old Testament reading. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be ancestor to a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, I mentioned two things to keep in mind as we learn about Abraham. So we've touched on the bare sufficiency of his faith. Not as a recommendation to keep the bar of knowledge and dedication low in our time, but to acknowledge that faith and followership are works in the making. Abram had no prior knowledge, no intimacy with the one God, and no explicit rules to follow concerning him. So not surprisingly, he made hash of his journey at times. Even so, at that time, his sufficiency was enough to credit him with faith and righteousness. At least he was true to his word, and his acquaintance with God grew along the way. By faith, he was the pivotal figure in the formation of a nation chosen to be light to the world. Now, as for the second feature of his faith, Genesis 17 took us back to that covenant language between Abram and God. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Abraham's faith was forward-looking. He acted in real time, but the promises made to him were not to his benefit. 
Abraham responded affirmatively to God for the sake of his children and their children and for generations after them. Through Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's sons carried the faith of their father and grew by tribes into a multitude of God-fearing people who accepted the earlier covenant. Now, in time, you may know, Jacob's family shifted to Egypt only to be rescued back through Moses. In their desert of deliverance, though, that whole generation's faith faltered. As a result, not one of them entered into the promise across the Jordan, not even Moses. But the next generation nation, growing out of salvation, out of slavery, entered into God's promise of their own volition. They carried the commands that would govern the next covenant people. They saw more of God and collectively knew his ways better than any that had gone before them. Theirs was a cautionary tale, though. With great knowledge comes great responsibility. From the time of Abraham, throughout the history of the nation formed through him, Israel had a contentious and often unfaithful relationship with God, ultimately requesting to be led by a worldly king like the other nations rather than by him. Saul was the first king, and after him, David. David is credited with having a full heart for God, but like Abraham and the fathers between them, David's practical life was often ungodly. He was adulterous and violent, but the words of his heart still echo with a firm faith and his storied experience with the God in ancient times. So listen to David recount the glory of God taught to him and experienced by him. Praise the Lord, you that fear him. Stand in awe of him, O offspring of Israel. All you of Jacob's line give glory. For he does not despise nor abhor the poor in their poverty, neither does he hide his face from them. But when they cry to him, he hears them. My praises of him in the great assembly. I will perform my, my vows in the presence of those who worship him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek the Lord shall praise him. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nation shall bow before him. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. To him alone, all who sleep in the earth bow down and worship. All who go down to the dust fall before him. My soul shall live for him. My descendants shall serve him. They shall be known as the Lord's forever. They shall come and make known to a people yet unborn the saving deeds that he has done. Despite his flaws, David challenged Israel to live into their covenant with the one God who heard the cries of the people, who lifted the oppressed, and who promised shelter to all those who would hide in him. And notice, like Abraham, David under, understood his responsibility in the present and to future generations. David committed his faith to words so that even we might know God's historic saving interventions and in so that we can carry on retelling God's stories and deepening the truth by adding our own experiences. David also wrote, 
songs and prayers that allow us to speak the things of faith when words fail us. Modern people of faith owe a debt to the faulty people that God saw fit to credit with sufficient and useful faith. Now, also like Abraham, David did not see his desired reward in his lifetime. David hoped to build the Lord's temple, but was forbidden because of his violent history. And David, who's also often called an archetype of Christ, would never know the one true king and redeemer of the world who had come from his family line. But thank goodness they acted for the future. Abraham and David preceded us in the faith with no small amount of credit given to them, despite their less ideal life choices. But did the gate of acceptability always swing so wide? Was there a place and time when the way narrowed and the path straightened? Look at Mark 8 with me. Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this all quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus chose Peter and loved him. He trained him as a disciple, and Peter declared himself for Christ alone. Why then is this confrontation so harsh? Abraham and David got away with some actual rubbish by comparison to this one-liner. What changed in the 1,800 years since Abraham first chatted with God but also packed the family idols along? Or in the thousand years since David sang God's praises but also got away with conspiracy to murder. Everything changed. God showed up and the bar was raised higher. Abram's faith, with no prior knowledge and no tangible rules to govern his life, was sufficient to go for God and for God to work through him. David's faith was acceptable, as were his words proclaiming the works of God for generations to remember the great saving love for humanity. But God broke into Peter's time incarnationally. That changed everything. The presence of Jesus meant that the word of God was being interpreted absolutely And the immutable way of God was being demonstrated fully so the disciples forever after would be without excuse. Faith, as small as a mustard seed, was sufficient 
for God to work with in anyone who might be Christ-adjacent. But only insofar as it would grow into something massive in a disciple. Peter was being trained to be proficient in the faith. For Peter, the apostle upon whom the church would be built, faith that would rebuke Jesus' truth and deny his course of action was not acceptable. Once Jesus became known, once he was revealed as Messiah, man and divine, and once Peter signed on to that, no compromise to the way, the truth, or the life would be entertained. Peter's denial had to be shut down. The fullness of his responsibility to the next 2,000 years of Christ's followers could not have been known to him. But it was imperative for Peter and us that he follow fully or get out of the way. Get behind me, Satan, said Jesus, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Where then should the heart and mind of a disciple be set? On divine things, on joy unspeakable, faith unsinkable, and love unstoppable. What is the essence of Christ's unstoppable love? It flows first from and to the God of heaven and earth, and then filtered through him, pours out without prejudice to all the people of the world who persist in the way of Jesus. It is the same love that called to Abram's heart, the same love that ushered a promise to all generations who willfully enter it, the same love that David sang about, the same self-denying love that became incarnate in Christ, and the same self-emptying love that took in sin and death to crush the power of both for the sake of the world. What was Peter to do? What was his responsibility? To bear witness to the truth and not thwart it. His knowledge of Christ came from the source, so his burden of responsibility to the whole truth was greater than any that had gone before him. He knew the promise of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the way of Jesus, so his path was set straighter. He had history and experiential evidence of truth, so the gate through which he would pass would be narrower. There was no tolerance for the rebuke of truth among the ones determined to follow Christ. More knowledge, more responsibility. At that moment, Peter was served facts. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of them, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter could either set aside his limited thoughts, shaped until then by the way the known world operated, and take up life in Christ. Or he could remain of the world, not participating in things beyond him, but he couldn't do both. The stakes were too high. Half-hearted faith among the disciples was insufficient, even damaging to the mission of Christ. Peter was in or out. Proficient 
or problematic. Peter chose Jesus. Now, his humanity uh, did reveal weakness a couple more times after that confrontation, but uh, Peter was ultimately unwavering in his commitment to the cause of Christ. And before his end, he experienced the fullness of life in his spirit. So what do we do with all this? What might it say to us? I think that God is creative, merciful, and generous. He has demonstrated a desire to know us and to be known. And to that end, he's seen fit to shape humanity into a people fit to be called his own, even establishing a means of perfecting humanity through Christ so that communion together is possible. We live with the benefit of narration. Ancient stories of creation and formation, hymns and prayers of old, but also first-person accounts, faithful first-century research and letters concerning the person of Christ, and his embodied instructions to all who would seek and follow the truth in the future. Aren't we, then, who have met Christ and who live by his Spirit, even more responsible for our faith and the generation of the gospel for now and for the future? Are we not living in a time desperately in need of shalom, God's love and peace? I say yes. And that we must therefore be consistent about our faith. Not only must we not rebuke God in Christ, but we must live into him daily. We must also understand that it's not enough to remain quietly faithful to the word for our own sake, because this was never a personal project. Christ came for the whole world, and our world needs to see love in action. And although there is a time to parse knowledge, and consider the words of Christ before we encounter him and adopt his spirit. And God bless anyone at that point in their journey because God's word proves the value of anyone with sufficient faith to act for him. For disciples after Peter, and I hope that I count many here, faith must be finished in action. For the love of God, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility today to be loving and speak peace. We have seen and heard the words of God. We have been shown the unequivocal way of Christ. And although that burden of knowledge is light to carry, it is on our shoulders. What we do with that burden for God's mercy and justice affects our neighbors. And what we don't do with it affects the future. The gospel can be lost in one generation. If our children don't see love poured out for the sake of the world, following the example of Christ, who will they follow? If Christ followers hesitate to feed the poor, heal the sick, free the enslaved, welcome the stranger, protect the oppressed, who will? Those are the tasks we're empowered for. I hope our hearts pound with anticipation when we're confronted by them. 
I hope we'll recognize the spirit in us, agreeing in community with God that we're meant to take responsibility at the very least for what's in front of us and consistently so for the sake of the future. So as we go out today and in all our tomorrows, please let peace and love be balm in our households, in our neighborhoods. Let's emulate Christ as an antidote to violence and hunger and hate. Let's please act with compassion, promote justice, and be prepared in every circumstance to gently, kindly give an answer for the hope that compels us, hope for the whole world, hope that may defy logic, given the state of creation looking like a palace on fire, but nevertheless hope that's been built over 4,000 years or so, not on the faith of men, but on the faithfulness of God who shouted out a window and who never faltered in his promise to provide saving grace to the world. If we'll call on him and by faith go for him. Amen. And let me close with our benediction. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. Share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment, each day. Amen.